Hey, welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this episode. And uh, with me, as always, is uh, the trimmer to my lawnmower, Brandon. (laughs) That reference is going to seem a little weird very soon. (laughs) Well, Brandon, I've even bring that up because uh, I'm always looking for, you know, the, the, the sidekick metaphors for this podcast. And, um, you know, here's the funny thing. I've, uh, I've got a lawnmower and my neighbor across the street, she and I kind of share the lawnmower. Um, but I just got a new lawnmower that I'm not going to share with anyone. And and it, what it, is this new lawnmower, Tony? That you it's, share? It's Manscaped 3.0 lawnmower. The Manscaped 3.0 lawnmower. Yes, I'm happy to announce that support for the Reverend Hunter podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below the waist grooming. And I received uh, a Manscaped lawnmower 3.0. And uh, it's it's an it's an incredible little piece of equipment. In fact, I don't know. Have you ever seen somebody mowing the lawn late at night? And and there's even like um, you know they'll like wear a headlamp so they can mow their lawn <laughs> late at night. Have you seen that? I have seen that once or twice. Believe it or not. Well, Manscaped. Here's the crazy thing about the Manscaped 3.0. It has a light on it. That's fantastic. It LED light, man. It's uh, it's quite quite a a piece of machinery that i highly recommend it's waterproof uh it's skin safe which i can tell you um is uh you know you couldn't ask for anything better if you're going to use it for what it's meant to be used for this is a family show so i'm going to leave some of this to your imagination but uh i'm happy to have manscaped as a as a sponsor, and I, I recommend you if, you, if you're into that kind of thing and you'd like to get a Manscaped, you can get 20% off plus free shipping if you use the code REVHUNT at manscaped.com. That's R-E-V-H-U-N-T, REVHUNT at manscaped.com. You'll get 20% off and free shipping. There's all sorts of stuff, not just the lawnmower 3.0, but all sorts of uh, lotions and gels. And uh, 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 even they even sent me a pair of underwear. You can't beat that. It's it's an all-around personal man care website, basically. It is. It is. So check it out, people. Well, um, hey, I'm I'm uh when when this airs I will be duck hunting in Oregon. How about that? It's it, everything's pretty much closed. The hunting seasons are pretty much all closed around here in Minnesota. Um South Dakota extended their hunting season for pheasants by a month this year. So I may sneak out to South Dakota one more time, may even try to do it with Scott Franzen, whom many people have heard on the Flush podcast and seen on the Flush TV show which would be super fun because we both uh, hunt with labs. But I am um, I'm recording this with you before I leave for my trip, but I'll be on the trip when this episode drops. It's my annual duck hunting trip to Oregon with my brothers, and I could not be more excited. It sounds like a blast. I'm super jealous. It's beautiful out in Oregon too, so it is. it's a good it time. Is. 
Yeah, it's out in central Oregon. He lives there. He's got a little cabin on a little duck lake. And he'll he'll call me and he'd be like, um, there are probably a thousand ducks and a thousand geese on the lake today. <laughs> That's what he'll say to me. That's, That's awesome. Oh so, yeah. It's gonna be fun. People can follow me on Instagram and and see all about it. Um it it's a lot of fun. And, and a special note, too. Notice we've been calling it Oregon. That's that's a little lesson for people. It's not Oregon as much as that's right. that it is Oregon. I, that. I, I lived out there for like a month, and I was taught that real fast. Oh, yeah. They take real offense at Oregon. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, you got to get it. You got to get it right for sure. Well, speaking of names that are a little odd and hard to pronounce, that's my guest today has uh, an interesting name that I made sure I was pronouncing correctly before... We started our interview. His name is Tovar Cerulli. And he wrote a book a few years ago called The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Sustenance. Um, he, you know, it's, it's, was, it was such an intriguing book, and it, it had kind of been on my radar for a while. Once I started the podcast, I knew Tovar was somebody I wanted to have on. And then when I read his book, I was even more convinced that he would be the perfect guest for us. He grew up uh, and and made you know he made a commitment to not only vegetarianism but veganism in his teens and all the way through college. Um, and then you know he did more he, he's such a thoughtful guy. He did more research on uh, you know s- sustainable ways to eat meat. And we also talk in the conversation about even the health benefits of eating meat. Um, and he thoughtfully re-entered the, the life of an omnivore and even went so far as to become a hunter, primarily a deer hunter. Uh, so we just have such a fantastic conversation. I, I'm so excited to have him on the podcast. I think you'll really enjoy it, everybody. And um, there's a link in the show notes to his book, which you can buy. Also, you can find him at tovarceruli.com. And if you don't know how to spell that, well, again, look in the show notes and you'll see it. But uh, it, it was a great conversation and I'm, I'm thrilled to bring it to all of our listeners. As with all the guests that we've had on the show, the, the best part is the journey, the honest journey that we get to learn about to hear where people started and where they've ended up now. And it's always been very, very cool to hear. Yeah. You know, Brandon, you and I have talked about this, but when we launched this podcast, it's been about a year now. And the question was, is this going to be like a 30-minute format podcast? And I just thought, I think it's got to be more like an hour in order to really get to build a rapport with my conversation partners and and to get the places we need to go. And I, I hope we've made the right choice. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people. So anyway, that's that's where we're at on the format. And I think this is just another example of, of how much awesome ground we can cover in an hour-long conversation. So here is my conversation with the author of the book, The Mindful Carnivore, Tovar Cerulli. Hey, Tovar, thank you so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. It's really a joy and honor to be talking to you today because I think we have a lot in common, um, including we just discovered that we share an alma mater and uh, you live not too far from there uh, across the river uh, in Vermont. Whereabouts in Vermont are you? 
I'm about 10 miles uh, east of, of Montpelier, so north central. Okay. And what's your, wh- where are you sitting today? Where, where do we find you? What's your, what, what are your surroundings? I imagine, you know, a, a pot belly stove and or something <laughs> like that. Some wood smoke, the, the smell of wood smoke. That's what I like to think of when I think of Vermont. Yeah, I mean, we do our our primary heat is is a wood stove um, up in our living room in our our little house, sort of tucked back in the woods here. Um, I'm actually we have a, a walkout basement where my uh, office and computer typically live. Um, so I've okay. look, looking out the windows here out of the sort of walkout basement onto we got about six seven inches of of snow on the ground which is lovely to see and everything's sort of coated Mm and sort of a winter wonderland out there that's awesome i remember when i was in college in new hampshire sometimes uh you know later later freshmen at at the at the school we shared were not allowed to have cars but maybe by you know junior year you'd i'd have friends with cars and if it would snow a lot of times, if it was like a Sunday morning and we weren't too hungover, we would drive around Vermont and because mm-hmm. it was so gorgeous after mm-hmm. uh, snowfall. And, mm-hmm. uh, and also, Vermont has some uh, incredible diners. In fact, I remember the Fairlee Diner we would go to and mm-hmm. the bumper sticker that said something like, what was the bumper sticker? It was something like, if I had to, if I can't eat at home, I'd rather be at the Fairlee Diner or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you've been in Vermont for a lot of years now. Um, how what's it like? What what's what what's it like to live in a in rural New England? Oh, I mean, I I love it. I mean, I grew up in in both New Hampshire and Vermont. And uh, and and this general area of of Vermont in particular, uh, and it lived elsewhere for for a number of years. Uh, but my wife and I moved up here, moved back up here um, in '97. Uh, so we've been <clears throat> we've been back, um, you know, for a couple of decades, and uh, it's <clears throat> it's great. I mean, I I love the the rural surroundings um the the mix of of cultures is kind of fascinating in the sense that there's a a very as you probably know from having spent time here you know there's a there's a still a very old you know multi-generational farm family leaning a bit more conservative politically um Mm -hmm. sort of culture here traditional hunting uh, culture as part of that. And then there's a lot of folks who moved up here in the 60s and 70s, you know, following the nearings or coming to Goddard College, which is a few miles down the road, you know, very much sort of the hippie back to the land era. Uh, and, and people who have moved here since. Uh, and so the, considering that sort of contrast in cultures, um, and I mean, there's obviously other, other cultures represented here too, um, uh, you know, Native folks and and various other immigrant and and ethnic groups and so on, um, but you know it's we're still a very white, <laughs> a very white state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but but that that those two cultures, I think there was a bit, bit of a clash back, especially in the in the sixties and seventies. Um, and there's still a bit of tension here and there, but mostly it's a it's a fairly 
integrated and mutually appreciative uh, relationship. And so it's an interesting sort of hybrid. Um, you know, we have a Republican governor and we've got Bernie in, you know, yeah. in the Senate, you know, <laughs> you know, right, right. and, and yeah. people tend to, people tend to vote, uh, people tend to vote for individuals that they respect and, mm. tr- and trust here a bit. I mean, some people vote party lines, you know, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting space socially, culturally, um, and I love the rural setting and the cold weather keeps the population down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often say that about Minnesota is that uh, keeps the, the, you know, those that one week in February where it's 18 below right. keeps the riffraff out, you know. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it, it's uh, you take it takes a hearty soul. I just returned late last night from my fourth trip to South Dakota for pheasant hunting mm, this mm-hmm. year. And, you know, I'd, I'd already been out there three times and didn't know if I was going to go back. Uh, and then it snowed and to, to be, you know, for, for pheasant hunting, I think there's nothing better than, uh, I mean, it really was, it was the perfect, uh, climate for us for pheasant hunting because there was a fresh four inches of snow and then it was like 25 30 degrees mm-hmm. and no wind which uh mm-hmm. i've hunted in some pretty brutal south dakota conditions but mm-hmm. it's interesting because i i took a guy out there a young guy and it was his first ever pheasant hunt he's just gotten into hunting he's i think 22 years old and um we were driving home last night, you know, and and he said I he, he was commenting on how few hunters he'd seen, or we had seen as we've been driving around to different fields and hunting, and I said a lot of a lot of guys just don't want to go out in January to hunt in South Dakota because it's it's you know it's a rougher hunt like you're pushing through snowdrifts and it's cold and windy and everything you have gets wet. Um, a lot of people are more into the the gentleman's hunt of October where it's, you know, 65 degrees. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there is something about the the bit tougher weather, I think, that that brings out the, the tougher hunters. At least that's a story I like to tell myself. <laughs> uh, you, your book, man, the, the Mindful Carnivore, I'm so thankful for it. And I know it's been a few years since you've written it. And I definitely want to, you know, talk to you about your journey since then and like what you've learned as you've reflected back on that book um and i just think so many people who listen to this podcast if they like this podcast they will like your book i mean they're we're just uh we're really you know singing out of the same hymn book as they say um mm-hmm. so you grew up really it's interesting the picture you paint for yourself i i am mad that one of my great uh, uh visual images of the book is okay i'll just say that like you i had to take hunter safety later in life because mm-hmm. i'm uh, first of all i didn't really start hunting till i was an adult mm-hmm. um and secondly, uh, because you didn't really need hunter safety back then. And I think like maybe even in Minnesota, I'm grandfathered in with a birth date of 1968. But in some other states where I wanted to hunt, uh, mm-hmm. I need I needed to 
get a hunter safety certificate. So mm -hmm. I took hunter safety and was surrounded by 12 year olds like you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, there's this image in the book of like, you're at a hunter safety class. There's, you know, a bunch of youth in the class and some of their dads and they're wearing their NRA t-shirts and mm -hmm. they're just basically, um, you know, checking the box so i i'm guessing you would even say in some of these cases these kids had already been out hunting most likely uh you know with their with their parents and you have braided hair down to the middle of your back and you're wearing like a mother earth t-shirt <laughs> so i'd love yeah. to hear a little bit yeah. about just like where um you know you how you got to be sitting in that hunter safety class yeah and uh and we should come back to that because i've since become a hunter safety instructor oh that's and, awesome and gone back to that same room and assisted oh those same gosh. instructors and had and had the lead instructor tell essentially that story to <laughs> repeated classes i mean it's 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 hilarious that's so we awesome can, we, we can we can come back to that in a minute yeah, i want to hear uh, that i want to hear that but uh <clears throat> um yeah so i mean i i grew up not hunting i grew up fishing um in in new hampshire and and some in vermont um and was sort of curious about hunting and i did have the opportunity to handle firearms a bit my dad had a had a couple of firearms but he wasn't a hunter and he wasn't actually even an angler. Um, so <clears throat> those, those were not really uh, part, uh, you know, the hunting was not part of my life at all. Uh, and then in uh, basically when I was 20, I, I became vegetarian. Uh, and that was a mix of, of things. Um, I was sort of curious about it. I knew folks, including my girlfriend at the time or late in high school who were vegetarian. Um, <clears throat> And started to read about it and, and just think about about those sorts of things. And then I had a uh, a particular moment when I was twenty. I'd sort of been playing around with the idea of vegetarianism um, when I went fishing, which I had not done in a while, and and reeled in the this this brook trout. Um, and in the act of killing it, I just had this moment of of recognition that. I had not needed to take that particular life. You know, I, mm. I did, did not need to kill that fish. And that, that's the, mm -hmm. the scene that I opened the book with um, is, is that moment of, of killing that fish and, and questioning it. It's like, wait a minute, you know, I could have had, you know, vegetables. I could have had something different than this life. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so coming from a place of, of compassion and thinking about animal welfare, um, I decided, nah, I'm not going to do that anymore, you know, and I'm not going to buy fish or meat either, uh, or, or poultry. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go vegetarian. And then within a fairly short period of time, I, I went vegan. So it wasn't eating, um, dairy products or eggs either. Um, so nothing that came directly from, hmm. directly from animals, um, and spent about a decade, um, following that diet, uh, pretty strictly. And, and then uh, toward the end of that decade, a couple of things happened as I, as I sort of recount in the book. Uh, the first was just that I realized that my diet was not at all um, 
free of impact on mm -hmm. animals or on the environment, you know, ecological or ethical implications um, that that agriculture uh, had all kinds of impacts directly on animals as well as on their habitats. Um, some kinds of agriculture more than others, but but an impact nonetheless. Uh, and and actually, one of my first uh, recognitions of that came while I was reading um, Richard Nelson's book Heart and Blood, which is a, just a phenomenal, probably the best book about white-tailed deer and our our relationships or deer in general, mm -hmm. but especially whitetails yeah. and our relationships with deer um, that I've ever read. I mean, he's just just phenomenal. And he actually recently he passed away this past fall or winter. Mm. Um, which is a, a great loss. I mean, he was, he was amazing. He actually grew up in the Midwest and ended up up in Alaska. Uh, mm -hmm. And he details that, particularly obviously around deer, just the, the number of deer that are, are killed by farmers and, you know, and folks with tags related to agricultural damage uh, mm -hmm. all across the country, you know, from California to New York and everywhere in between. Uh, and when I first read that, I thought, no, that's, you know, that's too bad, but that's kind of somewhere else and far away and has to do with, you know, big ag. And, yeah. and then I realized, and then I realized, no, <laughs> you know, the local organic farmer about three miles down the road that, you know, grows greens and strawberries that we eat, you know, when they get damaged, they're also shooting deer and yeah. they're, they're also smoke bombing woodchucks all the time. And, you know, I, I just started to realize that there was a lot of gray area that it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't this black and white, like, you know, plants, good animals, bad in terms of ethics or ecology or animal welfare, even it is much more complicated than that. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny. It reminds me even just last night, uh, I was, when we were driving home uh, from this pheasant hunt, we stopped in a subway to grab a sandwich uh, at a, in a little town in South Dakota. And there was an old farmer in front of us in line with his mask on, you know, and he said, oh, you guys have any luck? Because we're all, of course, decked out in blaze orange and mm -hmm. whatever with out-of-state out of plates. And, uh, we, oh, yeah, you know, we're seeing a lot of birds this year. You know, this year's been, how long you've been coming out here? I said, oh, about, you know, about 10 years. And this is the best year I've ever seen. A lot of, lot of pheasants this year. And it has to do every, mainly with spring nesting mm -hmm. conditions, you know. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, let me tell you. He goes, I'm pretty old. Back in the 60s, when I was a kid, whenever we'd go pheasant hunt, any farmer would tell us, you can only hunt my land if you shoot roosters and hens because they're eating all my corn. You know, <laughs> and then he went on to tell me about, he said, oh, we used to stand in the back of a pickup and drive down a, a tree belt and we'd shoot 20, 30 pheasants, throw them in the back of the truck and go clean them and get them in the freezer before the game warden could find us. We'd shoot pheasants and hens and et cetera. And so I was, you know, I, I'm of this like, wow, pheasants, you know, you have to work hard to shoot a limit of three pheasants these days. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about days when, you know, farmers, he said, uh, you know, a bunch of pheasants could eat three or four rows of corn during the growing season, which in these days of precision ag, where, you know, corn prices are, uh, you know, the margins are very thin on these farms. Yeah, they, they, these guys, that's how they look at uh, 
any animal that's eating their crop. You know, they're taking revenue away from them, whether it's a white-tailed deer or, or even a pheasant, which blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, um, you, you know, it's one of the interesting things about your book is you didn't just go into eating meat. Like you're so thoughtful about it. You, you obviously read a lot about it. Um, how did you go from this, like these whitetails in the Midwest, this is big ag, you know, this is not really my issue in New England to thinking, well, maybe I'm going to start stepping into meat eating. I, I mean, part of it for you was, you, as you talk about in the book, like even some health stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I started to recognize the gray areas um, in, in terms of ethics and ecology and, and food. Uh, and then I started to have not some major, not major health issues, but you know, my immune system really wasn't sort of up to snuff. And um, I had some, some allergies that were acting up and things, things like that um, get mm-hmm. sort of get colds fairly off and that, you know, nothing, nothing scary, but that kind of thing. And, and my, my doctor who at the time was a, a Buddhist naturopath, um, hmm. <laughs> um, you know, not the person who you expect to say, Hey, you know, you should, try eating some more meat, you know? Um, yeah. But she basically said, you might want to, you know, she, she did some blood chemistry, you know, blood analysis uh, at a lab and, and looked at it and said, you know, you might want to think about adding some, you know, some animal products to your diet to, to sort of balance things out here um, in your system. And, and it's funny, I've heard on multiple occasions, you know, folks who are, are convinced that a vegetarian or vegan diet is is the thing for them, um, mm-hmm. and then and then part of the pivot ends up being someone you know it's their acupuncturist or it's their naturopath or you know <laughs> some, someone who says you know <laughs> um, and, and and turns their head a little bit um, and gets yeah. them to reconsider things um, and. I, you know, for the record, I think there's a huge difference nutritionally between a strict vegan diet and a vegetarian diet. I mean, yeah, if, if, you're, yeah. if you're eating eggs and or some dairy products, you're getting a lot of nutrients that you're not going to get on a strict, strict vegan diet. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a decade in, I I had some some uh, some health issues, which in the context of having the insights about things not being black and white. Um, I was open to considering um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that kind of shift. And first it was just dairy. Like, you know, let's have, and my wife had been vegetarian and, and she was almost entirely vegan as, as I was um, at the time. And she was very supportive and she was studying health and, and mm-hmm. encouraged me. And so we tried some yogurt and, you know, ha- ha- having a bowl of yogurt, is kind of a radical act after a decade. <laughs> wow, that's that is really <laughs> you know, something. After a decade as a vegan, it's like you're wow. Yeah, couple, you know. And so first it was some dairy, and like then some 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 local eggs, and then mm-hmm. tried a little poultry and fish, and you know it was it was kind of odd. It, it, more my my body responded very well to it, but but psychologically it was kind of weird. 
Um, and your wife, your I mean, you you write quite a bit about her in in the book too. Mm-hmm. She walked on this journey with you, and I only mm-hmm. say that because, like, I I know I have a lot of friends who've taken similar journeys mm-hmm. religiously from like one. You know, mm-hmm. they they get married young, and they both are like fervently evangelical, and then one. Mm-hmm recalibrates rethinks faith kind of moves more progressive it it, it can be really mm-hmm. a strain on a marriage when you take a, mm-hmm. a big ideological journey like that if your spouse d- doesn't go along with you yeah yeah and sh- and she absolutely has you know we've been together since <clears throat> the mid 90s um and and she absolutely went on that whole journey with me she's not interested in hunting you know she has no interest Mm -hmm. in it at all um but is very supportive and you know witnessed the whole journey step by step and you know Mm -hmm. i've shared shared a lot of you know my thoughts and questions with her and and so she's been yeah she's been very supportive and and has with the exception of not being interested in hunting herself um has gone through much of the same sort of sort of evolution as I have. Yeah. And and eats wild game? Does she eat wild game with you? Oh yeah. You know, okay. in fact, like last year I did not get a deer and then we got into like early 2020 and we're in, you know, early COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, don't really want to go to the grocery store too much and she said, "You know, this would have been a good year to have a deer in the freezer." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh little, you know? little shame throwing a little shame your way <laughs> so yeah i mean she's she's come to you know be very appreciative of yeah of the venison. She's, really really enjoying you and thinking i really wish i would have married a more traditional hunter who bags a deer every year <laughs> exactly uh but you know i i had I've, I've had really good luck especially you know the last few years have been a little challenging for me, but but for about a decade, I just had a string of really good luck, and and mm-hmm. she, you know started to take it for granted, and 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 re- and really appreciate it. So yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm we're we're in the we're in the the fat times at our property in central Minnesota of deer, where mm-hmm. we can basically shoot as many as we have tags for, and mm-hmm. they're they sell doe tags in our unit for $2 and 50 cents. So it's, you know, they're trying to thin the herd because of CWD and stuff like that. And I do constantly try to remind myself, like it's, it's not always going to be this where (laughs) within 30 minutes of opening rifle season, we have four deer down, you know, that's just, that's not, that's not realistic for a long, you know, and into the future. But, um, you know, and, one and coming, of the things, and coming from yeah. and coming from Vermont, you know, oh yeah, the, the woods I hunt, you know, <laughs> that's obscene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I mean, we're yeah, we are spoiled, and uh, you know, I, it's it's interesting because uh, there used to be a ton of duck hunting in Minnesota, and there just are not ducks anymore. And it, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's all about habitat and about farmers tiling their fields and so the entire duck migration has moved west yeah um and doesn't fly over us anymore which is really sad because i love waterfowl hunting 
But then I look and I'd say, well, but look at the, you know, the deer, the, the number of deer is incredible. And it's everything is, you know, there, there's ebbs and flows to all of it. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to Murphy about that, too, um, about <laughs> it's a much more challenging uh, whitetail hunt in the Vermont woods than the Minnesota woods. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't, right. I don't yeah. take it for granted. Yeah. You know, sure. one of the, yeah. One of the things you mentioned in the book too, is a, as you were making this journey and your spouse, you know, was on the journey with you. And there are several other characters, recurring characters in the book who are, mm-hmm. you know, part of your journey, a friend of your father's who goes fishing with you and uh, your uncle who takes you deer hunting and mm-hmm. etc. But you do mention about, you know, you were, you were culturally ensconced in a group of friends and, and you worried about how receptive they would be. And I, you know, I, it, it also, I think about my, my son who, who goes to this same college that you and I attended in New Hampshire. It's changed a bit since you and I went there because he is, he's been sitting in Thayer dining hall uh, and he's had, he's had uh, animal rights activists, vegetarian animal rights activists come up to him and scold him like they they have these you know advocacy days where they will go into the dining hall find anyone eating meat and go up to them and basically publicly shame them for eating meat mm-hmm. uh isn't that something and i i obviously that was not your version of veganism but surely you know people who are that adamant about uh, their veganism. How, how did you kind of manage those ideological hurdles that must have been part of your veganism for 10 years of caring for, uh, caring for animals and the only way to really care for them is to not eat flesh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had to deal with those challenges internally first. Um, mm-hmm. And when we were... F- you know, starting to change our diet, uh, we had not started buying red meat, but we'd started to <clears throat> certainly shift away from a vegetarian, <clears throat> let alone a vegan diet. And because my vegetarianism was rooted in a commitment to, you know, being honest with myself about what I was eating and what the impacts were, as I started to change my diet, I started to think about, well, you know, if I'm going to not only have indirect impacts, but have, you know, through agriculture and so forth, but have direct impacts because I'm eating the individual creature, um, then I should engage with that directly and face what that actually looks like and means. Um, So I started to think about going back to fishing, which I did, and then started to contemplate Mm -hmm. hunting. The challenge in contemplating hunting um, was considerably different for me than fishing, partly because it was, you know, fishing was familiar. I'd done it as a kid, um, partly because mammals are different than fish. You know, we are, we are mammals and mm-hmm. we are big mammals and killing a big mammal just feels very different from, <clears throat> from killing a, killing a small fish. Uh, but it was also cultural, you know, and ideological, as you suggest, mm-hmm. you know, for, for myself to even contemplate, what does it mean for me to become a hunter? 
who who am I like sort of as a you know as a social and and cultural being <laughs> who am I becoming if I become a hunter what does that mean what does that even look like because um, my ideas about hunters notwithstanding my uncle who I really respected uh, my ideas about hunters were not terribly charitable you know <laughs> um, and so I you know worked my way through that. And as you say, did have some concerns that um, as I, and, and I think about it and, and have written about it a little bit as sort of coming out of the mm -hmm. closet, you know, <laughs> yeah. as a hunter in my, in my social circles, um, I didn't hide it exactly. And I was still early in the journey, but the first time I published an essay about hunting and becoming a hunter, I kind of wondered, oh my God, am I going to get blowback from people? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I didn't get as much as I expected, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't, my friendships were not constellated around like strict dietary ideology. I certainly had other friends who were vegetarian and vegan, uh, but I knew plenty of folks who were omnivores too, you know, friends and family. And so I wasn't so much, um, you know, ensconced in that kind of, of ideological bubble where it was, it was just sort of one way of, of thinking about diet. But mm -hmm. even people who are omnivores are not necessarily comfortable with hunting. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, as, you know, culturally and, and, and uh, feel un uneasy with the idea of, of someone going out and voluntarily, you know, carrying a, a, a lethal implement into the woods and trying to, you know, kill a, a, a large mammal and drag it home and eat it, you know? <laughs> um, so there was, I think, a little unease, but but I really mm -hmm. just didn't deal with much of that. You know, I, 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 once in a while, a neighbor, would, a neighbor who didn't realize I was a hunter would see me out like on a trail and be like, oh, you know, I didn't realize you hunted, you know, but yeah, yeah there really was not, there really was not much confrontation or conflict around that. I, I, it was more, yeah. the, the bigger struggle for me was internal more than it was external. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is this one little scene in the book where you're, uh, I don't know, I think you have a bow and you're walking out of the woods and you run across a neighbor who's out walking his golden retriever and right, you're like, right. uh oh, <laughs> what's this guy, you know, like this right. guy doesn't know I hunt, what's he going to do? And then, right. uh, he's and like, he, hey, he it's awesome. He, Great to see you. Well, he actually, he was, I remember it, it was funny because it, it revealed a lot about common ideas about hunting, you know, cause he, he saw me at a distance, didn't know who it was. And when got close to me, he's like, Oh, I thought it was some redneck out hunting. And I got, I had, you know, should watch my back, but it's you out hunting and I should watch my back. You know, it was like, he still <laughs> was concerned about the safety issue, even with yeah, a bow, yeah, yeah. but, but the right. sort of, the sort of the redneck stereotype, um, sort of the sort of class and culture stereotype about hunting was, you know, was loud and clear. Yeah, I do like the honesty with which you talk about that in the book. The and and I'm I'm really well versed in it and I'm I kind of have a foot in both worlds of the more old school traditionalist hunting type of guy, you know. Mm -hmm. Um and the the kind of the newer version uh you know like like you I'm active in backcountry hunters and anglers and it, you know that crowd that posse who's thinking in more progressive ways i think about mm -hmm. hunting but there's also you know there's also 
a whole group that the, the majority of hunters for sure are um, grew up hunting and maybe don't share all of the, you know, ethical and moral reflection on, mm-hmm. on hunting that, that sure. others of us do. So it's, it's tricky navigating those two cultures. Yeah. And it's important, you know, it's, it's really easy. And I, I mean, I had some of this when I started or as, as, as I was thinking about starting to hunt and early in my hunting, I had some sort of um, notion of, you know, sort of to oversimplify it, sort of, you know, good hunter, bad hunter, you know, Um, and and like more enlightened hunter, less enlightened hunter kind of thing. And, you know, granted there are, there are bad actors out there in the hunting world, people who do, you know, take marginal shots and don't really care if they wound game. And, you know, they're out there for sure. And I've seen Mm -hmm. that kind of behavior and heard plenty of it um, and, or aren't safe, you know, but there's also a lot who are very ethical and very um, conscientious and, and share, actually share a lot of the values that I share, but come from a traditional hunting background and may think and talk about it somewhat differently but their behavior and their values are actually very much in line with what I value and respect. Um, and, and finding the, the ways to help those two, two worlds really talk to each other effectively and listen to each other and understand that, Oh, we talk, you know, we come at this from different backgrounds. We come at this with different, um, assumptions and different language maybe that we describe it with. But in fact, we, are on a very similar page with with what we value about the experience and um, the kind of ethics that that we adhere to. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more. There's a lot of common ground that gets sort of camouflaged or covered up by superficial, you know, language and and cultural differences. I think. Yeah, yeah, I I I totally agree with you on that. I, I have definitely found that. Um, it's not nearly as hard to build bridges between those two groups as I had thought. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things uh, that I've mentioned before on this podcast, there, there's a book I think you would really like that I refer to a lot on this podcast. It's called God, Nimrod, and the World, and it's theological reflections on sport hunting. I don't, lo- I don't love the phrase sport hunting because I don't think that's really what the book's about. But um, that aside... There's a an essay in there by a, a recently deceased theologian named Stephen Webb, who is a vegetarian and an animal rights activist, and yet he makes the argument in the book. And I'd I'd love to hear, you know, what you think about this idea that um, the hunter and the vegetarian actually, you know, the hunter probably f- about four percent of Americans hunt. And about five percent of Americans are vegetarians, and that the that nine percent, uh, and you make this point in your book actually in some ways that that nine percent has more in common with each other than they do with the other ninety one percent of the American population because both the vegetarian and the hunter realize that the that eating meat means you are implicated in the killing of an animal. And mm-hmm. and the other ninety one percent of our population avoids that fact, and I think it's a big. I think it's a super important part of your work in the book. And I'm guessing 
you know, in in the decades since you wrote the book, uh, that it, it's been a big part of your work as well is is talking to that other ninety one percent and trying to get them to be more mindful of the way they eat meat. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I totally agree with the idea that that there is more in common. Um, than people would imagine at those what seem like sort of opposite ends of the spectrum in a way, you know, vegetarians and hunters. Um, but I, I think of it almost more like a, uh, <laughs> almost more like a, a circle. And if you go far enough to the other side, you've, you yeah. know, <laughs> you've, you've intersected the beginning again. And right, these, two, right. these two camps actually overlap <laughs> in yes. an interesting way. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Um. I I, I want to ask you about spirituality and religion mm. because you do talk openly about it in the book as well. Mm-hmm. You write about embracing your father's atheism in your teen years and then kind of acknowledging to yourself that actually you were more of an agnostic mm-hmm. than, a, than an atheist. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder how becoming a hunter has affected your understanding of religion and spirituality. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remain very much an agnostic. Um, <clears throat> I don't, you know, did not inherit an intact family connection, either my father's side or my mother's side to any, any particular spiritual or organized religious practice. Um, and I've had, you know, some experiences in the natural world, hunting and, and otherwise that make me wonder, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's like, that's hard to explain as a coincidence, <laughs> you know, that kind mm-hmm. of experience. Um <clears throat> And including, you know, including hunting, you know, some things happen that maybe they're just random chance or luck um, or bad luck, <laughs> as the case may be. But, but boy, when, when you think back on it, I think, boy, that's kind of remarkable. And you wonder what kind of um, other forces, spiritual forces maybe at work sort of unseen Mm -hmm. in the world. And of course, many, many spiritual traditions around the world are, are deeply rooted in, in the natural world and the, and the spiritual energies and, and, and intelligences that, that, that inhabit it in, in those traditions. Um, So I, I wouldn't say it's dramatically changed my sense of, of spirituality, um, I mean, the encounter with mortality um, and and taking responsibility for taking a life and and recognizing that mm-hmm. you too are you know an an animal in this big web of life, and eventually you know you too will perish and 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 are remain part of of that web of of life. Um, it, it certainly in, informed my sense of of spirituality, but hasn't drawn me to hasn't led me to draw any particular strong conclusions about <laughs> about the yeah. nature of the universe or anything um and and actually f- for for almost entirely community reasons 
Um, and uh, my my wife and I have have gotten involved with a local uh, church community here in Vermont over the past uh, you know four or five years, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very um, very progressive sort of affiliated with the UCC, but very progressive um, <clears throat> sort of sort of church community. Yeah. Um, and, and I've, <laughs> I've openly said in that community, you know, uh, that uh, I appreciate being there for the community and also because I feel welcome as an agnostic and a heretic, you know, <laughs> and to, to <laughs> yeah. much, to much laughter and appreciation and many people then coming up to sure. me afterward and saying me too. That's, you know, yeah. that's why I'm here. Yeah. That's why I'm here too. Um, right. and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I've, uh, yeah, had any giant pivots in in my uh, in my sense of of spirituality, and it definitely you know hunting and and being in the natural world more and in more different ways um, does uh, I guess give me a broader um, broader set of experiences and and sort of a broader palette, if you will, with which to sort of paint my own questions and maybe possible yeah. answers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, one of the unexpected gifts of becoming a hunter as an adult has been the gift of more of, 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 of an awareness of mortality. Like mm-hmm. to, to be, in, I, I was explaining to my wife the other day and, and um, this is something to which I'm sure you can relate. And she, like like your spouse, my wife, loves that I hunt and loves that we don't buy meat. We eat, you know, meat that I've... I, 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 I'm with you. Some of these euphemistic words like talking about deer as a resource or talking about harvesting a deer. These... I don't understand these. I, I kill deer, you know, I butcher them and I put them in the freezer. I'm not harvesting anything. It's, uh, I, I try to avoid the, um, the, the euphemistic ways of talking about this, but I was telling her, you know, maybe the hardest thing about deer hunting for me is that most often after I shoot a deer and I come up to the deer, it is not yet dead. Hmm. Um, and I either sit there and watch it expire or I have to, you know, shoot it again hmm. so that it does die quickly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yesterday, I, my dog brought back to me a couple pheasants that were not yet dead and I mm-hmm. killed them in my hand, you know, with my mm-hmm. bare hands. I, I killed those birds mm-hmm. and put them in the game pouch in my vest. So th- that's one of the gifts, I think. It's, it's, it's funny because the very thing that keeps a lot of people away from hunting is the thing that I think may be hunting's greatest gift is bringing me in touch with mortality and death in a way that has been uh, so, you know, so hidden from us in modern Western culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have very little contact, not only with the death of animals that, that end up on, on so many people's plates, um, but, you know, even human life, human birth and death, yeah. we are 
you know, we've institutionalized it. We've put it in the realm of hospitals and nurse and, uh, you know, nursing homes and, 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 you know, funeral homes and hospice to some extent. Right. But very few, you know, a lot of people get to middle age and they've never seen someone die. Yeah. Or, or someone born. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, because we've medicalized and institutionalized so much of this, we have, you know, and in the case of animal, you know, agriculture, we've, you know, we've put it into, into, you know, farms that very few of us work on anymore. Um, and, right. and, you know, slaughterhouses that, <clears throat> that very few of us ever see the inside of. Um, and so we'd have no idea not only about life and death, but, you know, in terms of those particular systems, especially at large scale, um, you know, sort of deeply mechanized and often inhumane. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> we, I totally agree with you. We're, we're out of touch with that. And that's part of why I, at least, and, you know, I think a number of other people who come to hunting uh, later in life and didn't grow up with that, you know, didn't grow up on a farm encountering that, didn't grow up um, hunting, encountering that. Uh, that's part of, not the only reason by any means, but part of what is appealing seems like a strange word for it, but part of what draws them to that experience is to, to get back in touch, to reconnect with that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of watching a deer die, in like the latter third of your book, I kept thinking, is this guy ever going to shoot a deer? <laughs> My gosh, your, <laughs> your journey, once you made like the mental, spiritual, uh, cross that threshold, like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot a deer. From the time you're sitting in that hunting class, which we opened the, the conversation with, yeah. to, <laughs> to the time you actually shot a deer, man, it it took you a while. It didn't, it did. you didn't have a deer walk in front of you your first day in the woods. That's for sure. No, no. I, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I went through, I went through three seasons, you know, and, and hunting, not every season hard, but you know, when I say every season, I mean, archery rifle muzzleloader, you know, here in Vermont, um, mm-hmm. and a little bit, um, out of state here in new England with, with, uh, friends and my uncle, um, yeah, I went through three years and did not get a deer. Um, and then in the fourth, fourth fall, I finally did, but yeah. Were it, you getting, <laughs> were you getting dejected before you got, what did you think? Ah, oh, this is never going to happen or. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did, in the, in the first year I didn't really care, you know, I mean, I, I was trying, but I got to help my uncle. He got a deer when, you know, we were on a hunt. Um, I got to help him with the, you know, butchering and the fact that I didn't get a deer that first year, I was totally, completely fine with, you know, by the second mm-hmm. year, I kind of wanted to succeed. And I, and I, you know, took a shot and missed and, you know, you know, by the third year I was like, what? <laughs> um, and then even in the, you know, early in that fourth year, um, even the day before I finally got my deer, I, you know, I just hunted hard like all day and not seen a deer. Mm. And yeah, I was definitely wondering like, this is pointless. Like, what am I doing? What a waste of, <laughs> what a waste of time and energy and, you know, money and everything to be doing this because <laughs> this is not ever going to happen. 
Right, right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, tell tell us about that first deer that you shot. What was that experience like? So it was second day of of <clears throat> of rifle season here in Vermont, which is a a bucks only four corn only sort of you know antler restriction uh, season. Um, and I was sitting in these woods where I'd um, been invited to hunt by a friend and had hunted the previous year. Um, I'd been there a couple of hours and, you know, hearing squirrels scampering about in the leaves, making all kinds of racket um, and heard what sounded more like hoofsteps than squirrel and looked up and there's a deer and it had antlers on it <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, and a fork, you know, it was, it was a legal deer. It was a four, four pointer. Uh, and I was just shocked to, to see a deer, you know, that mm. was a legal deer uh, after all that time. Uh, and, and, and you hit, you had, I should say not to interrupt, but yeah. I, like you had sh- taken a shot with a bow at, at a deer and missed. I had I, the year Previously. before. The year before, I had taken a, a, a shot with a bow, and just at the time, I was hunting with a uh, with a long bow, which is you know the last time I hunted with a long bow um, because I yeah. felt I felt pretty I felt <laughs> right. pretty confident. You know, I was like, well, yeah. you know, it, it's romantic until you wound an animal, um, yeah. and for me, you know, I'm not that confident. Obvious after that, and you know, it's not worth the risk. Um, just not worth yeah. the risk for me. Um, so yeah, this deer came in and was sort of nosing around at a scrape. It's like, and it was broadside at 30 yards, you know, and I'm sitting in this little, little ring of trees and, uh, took one more step and there were no branches between me and me and that deer. And I you know, squeezed off the shot. Um, and you know, deer jumped, ran maybe 20, 30 yards and went, down um and i was just shocked (laughs) i mean Uh. in that moment i was shocked that that just happened uh and i you know just a couple minutes later went over to that deer and you know the deer was was quite dead and you know it had been a heart shot uh and i went through the next couple of days anyway in it certainly hours, if not days in shock. Part of it was mm. shock that this happened. Part of it was the just emotional shock of, of taking that life, you know, that, that first time of taking a deer's life. Um, yeah. It's still a powerful experience, but that first time was just deeply shocking sort of at a psychic level, you know, mm. at the level of the psyche, sort of the soul level, you know, level was just, really disorienting in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and underneath that shock for me, there was a lot of grief, you know, just that the, the, the sad, you know, I was glad I succeeded, but I was really deeply sad about that individual animal's life, but also that sort of recognition of like, Oh my God, this is how the world works. I mean that like life yeah. and death is constant, not just deer, but all creatures. And, creatures killing and eating each other and there was just a deep grief about that and and about myself being the instrument of of that particular animal's death uh, and it was as as you referenced earlier the the process of of taking that animal apart the process of butchering that animal for me 
I knew I'd always do that. I, I'd always known that I would do that um, when I got a deer, that I wanted to do the whole thing, you know, just as I wanted to look at my food clearly as a vegetarian and what it meant as a, as a hunter, I wanted to look at it really clearly and, and do the whole process uh, mm-hmm. from start to finish. But that whole process of, of, of dismembering and, and butchering that deer, uh, which I was not particularly looking forward to, became very much the sort of the ritual, if you will, sort of the ceremony that helped me integrate that experience and help me get to a place where it felt um, appropriate. It felt fitting mm-hmm. that this, okay, this is okay. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wasn't eager to run out and shoot another one, you know, immediately, but I realized after going through that process, that, that butchering process over the, like the course of that, that weekend, um, that I would probably do it again next year if I had the opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it became, yeah, it was very important for me to, to have done that, mm-hmm. that whole thing. Man, that is awesome to hear about. I, I think for those of us who start hunting as adults, uh, you know, I absolutely remember viscerally remember the first year I shot mm-hmm. and remember the feeling of, you know, um, field dressing it, putting my, putting my hands into mm-hmm. its body cavity. I, re- mm-hmm. I like, I remember watching my wristwatch being submerged in blood mm-hmm. as I mm-hmm. put my hands in there to, to pull the entrails out. I remember, you know, my brother who's a, a very experienced hunter looking at me and laughing and saying something like probably should have taken your watch off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and it did. Like you, it stayed with me for days. It, I mean, it has stayed with me for years. Um, mm-hmm. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I, that was even my next question: was how did that affect you? But you've already, you've already answered that. I mean that that grief and shock, you know, but also gratitude and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, but what what the culmination of such a journey for you from, Mm -hmm. you know, a commitment to veganism to taking the life of an animal and butchering it yourself. It's, that's really a radical transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is like this. And in some ways it's interesting mix because in some ways like the underlying, my underlying values and concerns have not changed. And yet I've also undergone this radical transformation. <laughs> yeah. Now, tell us what, what have you done since then? What have you done since the book came out? What's, what, um, not just in your you know, hunting life, but like mm-hmm. in your professional life, what are you up to these days? And, and even like how can people find you and, and engage with your current work? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, when I, when I wrote the book, um, at least the latter half of it, I was in grad school. I'd gone back to grad school or gone to grad school, um, and I was studying communication and, and 
culture and in the sense of sort of anthropology and, and thinking about uh, values and how we communicate those values and and how that varies from group to group and culture to culture and did a fair amount of my 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 research and study um, on our relationships with wildlife and hunters and hunting mm-hmm. communities. Um, in fact, that's doing my master's uh, thesis is where I coined the term uh, uh, adult onset hunter <laughs> um, oh, in, yeah. the, in the midst of that. Um, and so my, my grad school stuff still revolved a lot around, around hunting and, and, and wildlife and hunting communities. Um, and I did a lot in those years um, talking like, book came out in 2012. I was in grad school until 2016, I guess. Um, And I was doing freelance writing. I was doing public speaking for, you know, state wildlife agencies and other, you know, organizations involved in the the hunting and and conservation world, often about adult adult onset hunting, so-called, about Mm-hmm. Bridging these bridging these gaps between the so-called I hate these terms, but so-called consumptive and non-consumptive users uh, of, yeah. of 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 nature and wildlife, um, and so I did a lot, continue to do a lot of that kind of uh, focus, um, and then in the past couple of years, um, in some ways I've stepped away from that a little bit. Uh, Okay. And, and I'm now sort of stepping, it feels like I'm stepping back toward it, um, which is part of why I, I welcomed this, uh, this podcast invitation. Um, I've, I, I work for, for a company called Metropolitan Group, and we do strategic communication and organizational development uh, work for government agencies and nonprofits and foundations. Um, Mm-hmm. Some of it's in public health, some of it's in environment and, and conservation, some of it's in social justice. Um, and I've been looking for opportunities and I'm starting to, to find some opportunities to, to bring these, you know, sort of my past and, and my, my work uh, with bridging these, these sorts of communities and helping state wildlife agencies, for example, engage with new, new constituencies and communities beyond the hunting and angling world. Um, mm. So I'm starting to bring some of that in um, and, and do that in the context of, of my work at, at Metropolitan Group. Uh, and I've also started to really ask myself, okay, how can I return to making a contribution, whether it's through my day job or on the side, how can I return to making a contribution um, to this particular world, the, the hunting and conservation and, and related mm, worlds yeah. uh, that's rooted in my experience, you know, something that is, you know, not just about my skill set as a, as a writer or, you know, as someone who can, can, be a you know a thought partner to clients on various challenges they're facing, but but specific to to hunting and nature and and conservation yeah. and relationships among groups of people who are engaged with hunting and conservation in different ways. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm beginning to to think about that myself and what does that look like now? I'm not actively writing a book. I'm not doing book talks. I'm not focusing full time on this stuff, uh, but. I do want to be. Um, I do want to find ways to to continue to contribute to these to these conversations and and what they mean socially and and politically and otherwise. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, I think, as I said an hour ago when we started chatting, I I think you and I have a lot in common. I'm I'm trying to do you know some of the same work myself as a um, you know transitioning from one field of study for the first half of my adult life into this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's great stuff. I'm really happy to know about you and your work. And I think a lot of uh, listeners, you know, will, will be intrigued by it and will look you up and hopefully follow you on social media and, and uh, hopefully buy your book and read it. Cause I think it's just really such a great contribution so thoughtful. Um, and yeah, I really, I, I admire it as an author myself. I really admire the work you did in that book and, um, I'm happy that it's out there for people. Well, I really appreciate well, the opportunity. Yeah. It's been great. It's been yeah, great to chat. It's, yeah. It's been a lot of awesome. fun. Well, sometime I'll be out uh, in new England, you know, and, uh, visiting my kids at college and <clears throat> seeing the, the new dorm that my tuition dollars built or something. <laughs> we'll have to, we can go out and shoot some squirrels or something and uh, hang out, maybe hook up with Murphy and uh, go on a little hunt or a hike or something like that. But thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And I'll look forward to following your work and, you know, down the road, have you back on to, to hear what you've been up to. Sounds great. Uh, great. Great talking with you. I appreciate it. <laughs>